This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Everyone and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Professor Jerry Thomas. I was a speaker at the Uranium Conference in Adelaide in June, and Professor Thomas was a keynote speaker there. Her speech was captivating and very informative, and it debunked a few myths that most people have about nuclear energy. So I had to ask her to come to this podcast, which she very kindly agreed. Professor Thomas has a degree in pharmacology and a PhD in pathology. Amongst many accomplishments, she is a professor of molecular pathology at Imperial College in London, where she carried out research into the health effects of the Chernobyl accident. Professor Thomas was against nuclear energy and then changed her mind. She will let us know what happened. So, Professor Thomas, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to have you here and talk to you again. Thanks very much. Nice to talk to you too. I talk to people and there's an ingrown fear about radiation that I believe is unjustified, especially because we are bombarded with radiation every single day. What do you think about it and where does it come from? Yeah, it, it's, it's difficult. I think it's something that most people share and trying to get to the root of where it comes from is quite difficult. There are, there are other things that we can't see, we can't feel, um, that we're not so scared of. I don't think it's as simple as just saying, well, we can't sense it, so therefore we're more likely to be afraid of it. I think it probably comes from a confusion in our minds between the use of atomic power in weapons compared with the, the civil use in nuclear power stations. And I think it's also, if, you are, if you're politically slightly left and centre, you tend to be against atomic weapons. And there is a natural feeling then that you should also be anti-nuclear power. But unless you sort of unpack the reasons why those two things are different, you can see why people will confuse the two because they stick, they use the word nuclear and atomic, in, and, and, but they mean totally different things. And uh, uh, one of the things I like to mention to people is that there are over 500,000 deaths every year caused by insects, yeah. being it because of poison, allergies, transmission of diseases, etc. And only 10 deaths a year caused by shark attacks. But most people have a panic attack when they hear the word shark, and they are quite tranquil around insects. I think that's probably because of the large teeth of the shark. <laughs> sure. And, uh, well, in, in terms of nuclear energy, do you think there is also a gap between reality and perception? I think there's a huge gap between reality and perception. Uh, and I think for those of us who are born in the 60s, it really did stem from the, the fear of the fact that, that you know, an, a, an atomic bomb would completely wipe out our species on the planet. And that's what they, we were fed. Uh, and of course, it was politically wise to make sure that we were scared of, of a nuclear power because that meant that they would be accepting of spending, you know, our money on defense mechanisms and things like that. So you can see where, where some of that came from. But the after effects of a nuclear power plant accident are not, not at all the same as a bomb. And I think that's where we have things confused in our minds. I think also most people are, are blissfully unaware that we are surrounded by radiation. 
Um, most people demonize things like uranium and say, you know, just one atom of uranium could do all sorts of, of nasty things to your body. Whereas you can't avoid uranium. You're eating it when you swim in the sea, you're bathing in it, but people just don't know it's there. Sure. And, uh, you, well, you, you, you mentioned something very interesting. Uh, people are bombarded with uh, unreal facts about radiation too. And, and we are actually being exposed to radiation on a constant basis. So when does the hazard become a risk? Really and truly, the, the dose level at which we can say we can see something when we do epidemiological studies is 100 millisieverts. So you'd have your natural background radiation dose, and that varies, of course, around the world. But if you receive about 100 millisieverts on top of that, that's when we say we can probably see the effects. Although, actually, if you look at some of the graphs, I would argue that even at 100 millisieverts, we're not entirely sure that what we're seeing is a significant effect. Um, we see an effect, yes, but when you put it in the context of other health risks, is it actually that significant? And the answer is probably no, not even at that dose. It's probably the best if I give you an example of that. There is a, there's a huge data set in the United States that looks at health statistics called the FEA database. Um, and so we tend to use the American population when we're looking at this sort of thing because we have very good data for other health effects on that population. If I gave 100 Americans 100 millisieverts each, how many of them do you think would get cancer from the effect of being exposed to radiation? I have no idea. <laughs> Only one person. But if you look at the other uh, people in that population, out of that 100 Americans, 42 of them would get cancer from other causes. So you're looking at something that has a very small effect in the overall um, proportion of people who will get cancer. And of course, as we're living longer and our lifestyles are getting worse, actually the frequency of cancer from other causes is increasing in our population. So, you know, we think that one death is absolutely awful out of 100, but I'm more concerned about the 42 people who get cancer from other causes. Sure. It's the, it's the insect and the shark again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we're worried about something that really isn't that dangerous. We've got it out of proportion. And do you think that communication is the problem? The, the, the emphasis on safety and misinformation? Yeah, I think the emphasis on safety and the fact that actually if you go and Google anything on the internet, all you'll get is an awful of scare statistics. You won't actually get to the basic science. So I can understand why people will be confused and thinking that it's much more dangerous than it is because if you just use Google as your source of information, that's the impression you're going to get. So I think that there are two different players in there and I, and I think, you know, it is difficult to communicate about radiation. Radiation is not simple. It's, you know, talking, if you talk about dose, it's not as simple as, you know, taking a dose of a drug, you know, like a paracetamol or a cetamine of energy in the States. You know how much is in the tablet you're going to take. You know what the effect is going to be. Radiation is a lot more nuanced in, in, in its effect. It depends on the type of radiation, depends on the biology of the person. It depends on where they live, how much they're going to get exposed, depends on when they have an urban or agrarian economy. So it's much more complicated. And things that are more complicated are much more difficult to explain, especially if you're using something like the general media where you have a few seconds to get your point across. So I can understand why it's so difficult to communicate this. Sure. And the data is easier to manipulate too, right? Oh, yes. It's very easy to manipulate this. You can take things out of context and make something look an awful lot worse. Politics 
politicians do that all the time, of course. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But uh, you were against nuclear energy at a point in time, and then you changed your mind, right? Yes, I was. I mean, I was. I was. I'm very left of centre, so I think I naturally went with my tribe and sort of said, "Well, I'm against nuclear weapons, therefore I have to be against nuclear power." And it wasn't really till I started working on the after effects of Chernobyl that I started to say, "Hang on, I, I can't hold that concept any longer because this is so different from what I would expect from nuclear bombs." And actually, the, the longer time period that we've been examining the health cohort studies of the Japanese from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, actually, they're scary the bombs even get. They're scary because of their initial power, um, but that's what you want in a weapon. You want something that's going to completely flatten an area that you're going to detonate in it. But actually, the longer-term health effects, particularly from the people who've got lower doses, are not as scary as we thought they were. So, you know, hindsight is a good thing. You start looking back and you start thinking, mm, did I get this right? And the answer was probably no, I didn't. Sure. Well, that's good that you to, that you change your mind, and uh, it, and it also looks like the radiation in Hiroshima and Nagasaki today is on, on a par with uh, low levels of radiation present anywhere on Earth, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, that was that was mainly gamma, so it disperses very very quickly. Um, you know, people like to think that these places are still contaminated. The answer is they aren't. If you go to Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, they are thriving cities now. Now, uh, let's talk about Chernobyl specifically because. Uh, this was the worst nuclear accident in history yeah. and uh, and recently HBO has come up with a series that seems to be quite yeah. famous it's, it's a good drama it's a brilliant drama but it doesn't make good time <laughs> sure uh, so uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about it because you studied so much and um, uh, so how serious was it what what really happened and what were the consequences of the accident yeah and I think we should be thinking it in terms of a, an industrial accident and examining it from that way viewpoint. There were lots of issues over the way the power plant was run and all the rest of it, which came out in, in the HBO series. Um, what probably didn't come out was actually the real health effects. There were two different explosions. They were not nuclear bomb explosions, which is the sort of idea that you had from, from the, the series, although I'm not sure that the uh, director actually meant you to take away that idea. Um, so you had three people who actually died as a direct result of the fire itself. There was a thermal fire as well as having some radiation, beta radiation uh, burning as well. So one guy, one guy died actually from thermal burns. One died from a heart attack, which is quite understandable in the circumstances. And one poor gentleman was buried under the rubble and we believe is still buried under the rubble somewhere in the power plant. So you had those three immediate deaths. Then you had the emergency responders, the people who were there first on scene and some of the helicopter pilots who were dropping boron to try and extinguish the, the, the fire. They had very high levels of radiation exposure. So 146 of them actually had more than one sievert of radiation. Uh, and over about a sievert of radiation, you get um, a, what we call acute radiation syndrome. So those people were very sick. Uh, they were hospitalized in, in uh, Russia and in, um, in Kiev, I think, in Ukraine. And they were, um, some of them had an awful lot of radiation burns and thermal burns as well. So the skin was badly affected. 28 of those subsequently died within weeks or months after the accident. There were another 19 who have died in that cohort of 156 people who have died subsequently to that, but actually their deaths are more attributable to lifestyle, so drinking, smoking, driving cars, that sort of thing. So actually, all the deaths that we can attribute directly to the radiation was 28 from exposure to high doses. After that, then, 
you have the problem of the volatile isotopes, cesium and iodine particularly, were spread into the upper atmosphere and drifted around that area. Um, because they're soluble in water, they come down when it rains. So you had precipitation onto the grass and onto crops. Um, and on grass, obviously, cows eat grass. The iodine becomes concentrated in the milk. And if you don't stop that food chain, children particularly will take in an awful lot of milk that's contaminated with iodine. So the only consequence that we've seen in that particular population has been an increase in thyroid cancer in those who were children at the time of, of the accident. So under 19. And that we would have expected to see from what we knew about animal studies. We knew that if you gave radioiodine and then followed it up with with dose of radioiodine to weanling animals and then followed it up with a growth stimulus, you would produce thyroid cancer. So we can completely understand why we see those cancers. The good news about thyroid cancer is that ironically, you can treat it with the best targeted treatment we have for cancer, which is iodine-131, which is the same thing that caused the cancer, but you give it in very high doses so you kill off the thyroid cells. And as long as those thyroid cells continue to concentrate iodine, which they do naturally, you can um, make sure that you're killing off the cancers in those people. So we only have about a 1% expected death rate for people who get thyroid cancer. So that's good news. So although there's a large number of cases, actually very few people will die from thyroid cancer over a period of about 50 years. It doesn't kill you quickly either. It takes a long while to evolve into a form that we can no longer treat with with radioiodine. Um, Then you have the cohort of people who cleaned up the reactors, so who came in after the emergency responders. We have about 600,000 of those in different cohorts now in the different independent states that split off from the Soviet Union. And those have been studied quite intensely because the doses they received were a lot higher than the general population. So if you were looking for a radiation effect, you'd expect to see it in higher dose cohorts. Actually, we haven't seen an increase in solid cancer yet in any of those cohorts. There's been a couple of reports in one of the cohorts, only one of the groups that are being followed up, uh, that suggest there is a slight, but they say non-significant increase in a particular type of leukemia that we would not expect to see an increase in anyway, because uh, it's not normally radiation associated. So there's a lot of queries whether that's actually a real increase and time will tell. So there's the potential that there may be some people with cancer in that, although we're 35 years out from the accident, almost 35 years out from the accident. So we would expect to start to see cancer increasing if that's going to happen. So far, we haven't. We can't be dogmatic. There won't be an increase, but it doesn't look as if it's going to be huge. Interesting. And uh, moving from one to another, let's talk about Fukushima. Uh, Fukushima is an interesting uh, poster child of what we have discussed so far. 20,000 people were killed because of tsunami. 2,000 people were killed in the evacuation process. And no one was actually hurt because of the nuclear accident. Yeah, that's correct. Yet everyone remembers only the nuclear accident. Yeah, and I, I personally find that very sad because I spent a lot of time in Japan before Fukushima and afterwards. And I feel very sorry that the rest of the world forgets the 20,000 that were killed in the tsunami. The Japanese don't, but I think that we have a tendency to just to forget about the tsunami and concentrate on the accident, which didn't kill sure. anybody. Now, is there a comparison between Chernobyl and Fukushima? There is and there isn't. Um, if you like, the, the two are very different scenarios. They both emitted radiation into the local environment. In Fukushima, the radiation emitted was very much less than there was in Chernobyl. 
And the Japanese had learned from the Chernobyl accident and realized they had to cut the food chain very quickly. So they were able to decrease um, the amount of uh, radioiodine exposure to the population very quickly. Um, and so actually the doses are about 100-fold lower than they were post-Chernobyl in the areas that were most exposed. So the chances of us seeing anything at all, any increase in cancer due to the radiation is minuscule. And in fact, you know, we're never supposed to say there will not be as a scientist, but we won't be able to see. If there is an increase, it's going to be so tiny, we won't be able to see it. And I doubt that there's a real increase there anyway. Okay. So uh, what should people do in case of a nuclear accident? First thing, don't panic. Panic kills people. Radiation doesn't at low doses. So first thing is don't panic. The best thing to do is to do exactly what you would do if there had been a chemical accident. And that would be to stay indoors with your windows and doors shut. So you're not inhaling any of the radioactive cloud that comes over. I don't think evacuation is necessary unless it gets over a certain death rate or you can't provide people with non-contaminated food, drinking water and milk. If you can do that, then you don't need to evacuate. So in a westernized society where you know we go to the shops and get our food, we don't grow our own, it's much easier to do that. So I think if you can give the right advice and you can get people not to panic, that's the best thing that you can possibly do. Some people argue that you should give stable iodine. Stable iodine is only useful over a certain dose and it's only really useful for a certain section of the population. So for those who are very young, um, those who are pregnant or lactating uh, women. So there's only certain sectors that should be even thinking about taking stable iodine. Um, so my message is don't panic. Listen to advice from people who know what they're talking about and stay calm. Okay, good advice. And is interaction and communication an important issue? Yeah, I think one of the things we learned after Fukushima was that the media can put some very scary headlines out and that just makes people feel awful and makes people panic. I think it's really important that the media get access to people who know about the effects of, of radiation. It's very easy. The media want to be balanced, so they have to represent more than one uh, opinion on the matter. But they also have to be able to look and say, well, what is, what is the prevailing opinion uh, and give weight to the prevailing opinion. And I think we learned that after Fukushima. Some of, some of the headlines were quite shocking and I, I thought the media coverage did not help. That's not saying the journalists weren't doing the job. I just think they weren't getting access to the right people. And subsequently, uh, we've had an awful lot more conversations with the media. Scientists don't like talking to journalists. Journalists are very scary. Uh, and I think we scientists learned that lesson during because if we don't talk to them, somebody else will. And that won't necessarily be the right information that they're being given. Got it. Uh, and if people want to know a little bit more about what we discussed here, where can they find the proper information? I think the best place to look is there, if you just Google radiation restatement an Oxford Martin School, there is a document there that's freely available on, on, the, uh, on the website there that goes through in a sort of dispassionate way. Uh, what we know about radiation gives you the basics of how radiation works, but also goes through what, what we know about health effects of radiation, looking at different cohorts of people, looking at the lifespan study, Chernobyl, Fukushima, and all the information we have on workers' cohorts, and the information that we have from areas of the world there is high natural background radiation. It was, it was designed to be read by a history graduate advising ministers. Um, so the first section of the document is quite simple to understand, and there are more 
complicated annexes for those who want to delve further. So that's number one, because I think that summarizes everything we have. If you want to know specifically about Fukushima and Chernobyl, I would go onto the UNSCEAR website, that's U-N-S-C-E-A-R. If you go onto their website and look for Chernobyl and Fukushima, you'll see a series of reports there. They're quite weighty documents, so I'd start with the executive summary if I were you. But if you want more information, there is loads of information there. I think those are good. And actually, you know, if, if you don't mind going to um, an industry area, I'd go to the World Nuclear Association's web pages as well. They have lots of really good data on nuclear power, health effects of radiation. Everything is there. Very well researched, very well resourced. And they are actually talking to scientists and what they're talking about before they put those web pages up. So I think there's three good sources there that anybody who's got access to the internet can go and look at. Awesome. I'll put the link on the website. Uh, and Professor, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. This is an important issue and uh, to have someone as knowledgeable as you Thank to you. help us better understand the facts is always a privilege. So it has been a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. Thank you.